I want to talk to you today about revival. Now, when we think of revival, we often associate it with an extraordinary move of God in a particular church or place or amongst a particular people group, such as the Barrio revival amongst the Kalabit or the Bacalalan revival amongst the Lumbawang, both from around 1973 to 1984. Or more recently, we saw the beginnings of a revival on campus at uh, Asbury in Kentucky these last few months. Now, whilst this definition of revival is accurate, today I'm also referring to the revival or turnaround in our circumstances at a national level, a city level, or or just in your own situation or that of your family. Do you long for or do you need such a turnaround, such a revival in your own life? Our passage today is from the Old Testament, and it looks how God often brings about a revival of circumstances and blessing for his people. The context is King Solomon of Israel has just completed the building of the temple in the 10th century BC, the place where the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem today. And God appears to Solomon at night. So let me read to you. This is Second Chronicles chapter 7 beginning at verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land." Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Amen. Now, whilst we can't reduce the work of God to a formula, nor can we reduce revival to a mechanistic process, it it doesn't work like that. God does what he wants, when he wants, and where he wants. We do, however, read three key words that often outline how God works. And those are when, this is the situation, if God's people will do this, then God will do that. When, if, then. And it all begins with the when of the situation. Verse 13, God says, when I shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. It begins with when, when there's no rain, Maybe you feel spiritually dry or like there's no blessing pouring down on you at the moment. It says when locusts are devouring the land, perhaps you feel like parts of your life are disappearing or being eaten away at, like your emotional, relational or financial well-being is being stripped away or laid bare. And the passage says when there is plague, 
Maybe you feel like so many things are hitting you one after another. It's just overwhelming. But take heart. Revival begins when. It's when we realize how desperate the situation is and more importantly, how desperate we are. That is when we move towards the if we do such and such. So what are the the key steps we see through which the Lord revives us? Well, the first is humility. Verse 14 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. When we're desperate, we become acutely aware of how powerless or how small we are. Now, this is not a bad thing. This means we get a right perspective of ourselves in relation, not just to the situation, but more importantly, in relation to God. Let our posture be the same as that of John the Baptist, who in John 3.30 said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. A person who is humble also tends to think well of others and wants to lift them up rather than tear them down to below their own level. You see, being truly humble rather than being a sign of insecurity is usually a sign that somebody is totally secure in who they are, in their identity in Christ, knowing that they are indeed called by his name. And Jesus modeled this to us beautifully. In Philippians 2, 6, it says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became nothing, taking on the likeness of a servant and humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. I have a friend called Steve who's a pastor and he was invited to speak at this big conference and he got there and the speakers were all together so they could get to know each other before it began. And he didn't know anyone, but he saw this sort of older uncle figure and he went up to him and said, hi, I'm Steve. And the guy said, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Bill. And then they went into the auditorium for that first session and they're sitting at the front and uh, Steve says hi to the woman next to him. And the host gets on stage and says, our first speaker tonight is Heidi Baker of Aris Ministry in Mozambique. Heidi's done this, done that, and Cecil thinks, wow, she's impressive, but he'd never heard of her. So he gets his phone out and he Googles, who is Heidi Baker? And he's looking at it and the woman says, oh, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm just looking up Heidi Baker. I've never heard of her. And then the host says, so will you give a warm welcome as she comes up on stage, Heidi Baker? At which point, to Steve's horror, the woman next to him stands up and gets on stage. He thinks, oh no, that was Heidi Baker. So embarrassing. Well, after that amazing first session, he goes up to her at the end when she comes off stage and says, I'm so sorry, Heidi. I didn't know who you were. She said, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. And he, he goes, well, 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 let me make it up to you. At which point he sees the un old uncle coming up. He goes, let me introduce to you. And she says, oh, hi, Bill. And Steve goes, well, you know Bill? And Heidi goes, yes, of course I know Bill Johnson. He leads Bethel Church in the US. And Steve goes, oh no, I've done it again. And <laughs> they all laughed. And then Heidi Baker and Bill Johnson prayed for him. And what Steve said, he was struck by their humility, their lack of ego. And you know, the key to becoming more 
humble in our lives is to focus more on Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. What might that look like for you? Now, talking about humility is not easy. The minute we begin to talk about it, it tends to leave the room. But humbling ourselves is a necessary first step in how God wants to work in our lives to bring revival. Why? Because only once we are humbled can the next step occur, and that is hunger. Once we humble ourselves and realize our own relative powerlessness, then we begin to realize our need for more of God. And we grow in our spiritual hunger for more of Him and our desire for more of Him to move in our lives. So verse 14 continues, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Do you pray and seek the Lord? Do you push into an intimate relationship with Him? At the start of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I've been so encouraged by your growing hunger for more of God. Here at Lot 10 in KL, the worship times in the services have been amazing. People are singing so loudly. I love it. But also, when we ran our last 24-7 week of prayer, all the one-hour slots across the week were filled, in fact, multiple times over. And I know many of you who watch online were also grabbing a slot and praying. Thank you. It's such a rare and beautiful thing. Thank you for your hunger. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all who delight in them. We seek out that which we delight in. I personally delight in roti, all types of roti. Roti Chennai, roti tissue, roti boom, uh, roti jalan mubarak, roti parata, every type of roti. I can't get enough of it. I will actively seek out the best roti. Now, unfortunately, Jesus did say, man shall not live on roti alone. But he also said, I am the roti of life, the bread of life meaning that when we feed on him spiritually, he's the only one who can truly satisfy and delight us. Let us be a church that hungers for roti, the roti of life, Jesus. But what if, when we're honest, we think, well, I'm not actually that hungry for God. We can't just conjure up spiritual hunger. Well, I want to both encourage us and challenge us because we grow through a combination of encouragement and challenge. If you're not that hungry, then ask Jesus in prayer to give you hunger for him. And if you're moderately hungry, ask him to increase your hunger for him. Now, this might manifest itself in many ways in our lives. It could mean a desire to listen to worship music whilst we do house chores or in the car or in the gym. It it could mean a renewed hunger to read God's word or getting up earlier to spend time in prayer. 
or it could mean a desire to see God work in your family or in your school or your workplace. There's a woman at HTBB called Suai. She volunteers in part of the worship and production team, but her job is she's an amazing golf instructor. And at uh, her club uh, where she works, she's just run alpha in the workplace there for all of her staff. Now, of course, her golf course was already a holy place. It had 18 holes, I believe, but it's about to become even holier. And others here I know are running alpha in the workplace. Right now, there's over 150 people on an alpha just in some offices down the road. Maybe in your context, you might think, yeah, my hunger is going to come out in my desire for others to feed on Christ. Evangelism often begins with a hunger in those who are sharing their love of the Lord with others. That's why we're creating the first global alpha studios here in KL, so that out of love and a hunger for the Lord, we can make alpha videos to reach out to people all over the world. You see, when Christians get hungry, the whole world gets fed. Whoever you are, ask the Lord to make you hungry for more of Him today. And just watch what happens in your life and the life of those around you. And when we combine humility with hunger, it leads us to the next step, which is holiness. Any growth in holiness begins with repentance. Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Repentance doesn't just mean being sorry for the wrong that we've thought, said, or done. It also means combining that with an active turning away from it, from the wrong. And we do this when we have an increased acute realization of our sin and we have an increased awareness of the dirtiness of sin when we hunger for more of the purity of God in our lives. And every revival in history has consisted with a move of repentance within the church. A turnaround in our circumstances begins with a turning towards God and a turning away from the sin in our lives. Repentance is not something to run from, but to run towards. It's one of the most powerful, life-changing, destiny-defining things we can do in our life. And God promises that when we turn from our wicked ways, He says, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We've recently celebrated Easter when we remember the cross of Jesus the means with which our sins are now dealt with, we're forgiven. You can know that whatever you've thought, said, or done wrong, it is forgiven. God no longer keeps record or holds it against you. It's partly what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness means being in a right relationship with God, restored again. And this is his promise when we turn to him in repentance, a fresh start. But what I also find exciting in this verse is God says that when we do that, he will forgive our sin and heal 
our land. Wow. I mean, when we look at the nations, when we watch the news and think, oh my goodness, what a mess. We are not powerless in that moment. We can impact the future direction through our own repentance. A nation rises when the church drops to its knees. Jacintha is one of our pastors here at HTBB, and her grandparents were involved in the Bakalalan revival. The Lumbawang people had been originally headhunters and drunkards. Actually, a book written about them was even entitled Drunk Before Dawn. And yet, when they heard the gospel and they turned to Christ, the well-being of the whole tribe, the whole society was transformed, was revived. In just a few generations, Jacintha's father ended up as a surgeon and a minister in the chief minister of Sarawak's department. And Jacintha herself, she studied at Harvard. Only Jesus can do that sort of turnaround. Just think what could happen in KL or in your city, in your context, if we turn in repentance. What would a healed nation, a healed city look like? Solomon had succeeded his father, David as king, but only just after bloodshed and much uncertainty. But after turning to the Lord and asking for wisdom, Israel became the very epicenter of a global wisdom movement and it became the seat of learning. A complete turnaround, a revival. And accompanying the advancement of God's kingdom, we see that signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, such as physical healing, happens as well. Uh, some of our uh, neighbors where we stay, um, it's a husband, a wife, and they have a son. The wife is from mainland China, and uh, she re recently came on uh, uh, our Alpha course at HTBB. She did it online. And uh, she came to faith on that Alpha. Then she started coming along uh, with her family. And then her son uh, decided he wanted to get baptized. So a few weeks ago, we had the privilege of baptizing him. Now, the father, the husband, he's a little bit more cynical, uh, but an amazing guy. And when it came to that baptism service, I noticed he seemed to be in a lot of pain. He needed knee replacement surgery. And he was in such pain that day, poor guy was even struggling to stand up during the service. So at the end, I went up to him and said, look, you seem to be in a lot of pain. Can we pray for you? And he said, yeah, I'd really like that. Thank you. So we prayed for him, for the pain to be gone in Jesus' name. That was the Sunday. Monday comes. There's a knock on our door. I open it and the husband, Norman, is standing there and he goes, hi, Miles, can I come in? I said, yeah, sure, come in. He said, look, I just wanted to come around to tell you myself. He says, I can't believe it. I was prayed for and Jesus has healed me. The pain has gone completely. 
And he, he, he went around, he was telling everybody all around where we stay that he had been healed. He said, look, I, he said, I can't explain it rationally. I, I'm an engineer, I'm a man of science. But he said, I know this, I was in terrible pain and Jesus has now healed me. See, as we go through from the when to the if to the then, we go from humility to hunger to holiness to healing. And all of this is not on account of us or in our own strength, but through the grace of God and the presence of his Holy Spirit. You see, in verse 16, we read this. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God promises that his presence will be in the temple, always. But as St. Paul explains to the Ephesians in the New Testament, that God's family is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In other words, God's temple is no longer buildings made up of stone, but people, living stones in whom his spirit lives. That's you and me. And it's why Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There can be no revival in our lives, in our families, our workplaces, our, our city or our nation, unless we are first filled with the Holy Spirit. So if it's okay with you, I'd love to pray for that right now. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, would you fill every person watching this right now? Receive the presence of God. Now, just before the people of God crossed the river Jordan into the promised land, Joshua told them to consecrate themselves. Interestingly, in our reading, the Lord says, I have chosen and consecrated this temple. What does consecrate mean? It means to dedicate yourself to God. It means to say, God, I'm sorry, I turn to you. I'm all in, 100%. And in Joshua 3, 5, he says to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. And I believe right now that the Lord wants us to do just that, to take a moment to consecrate ourselves. You might wanna put a hand on your heart or something like that. Just allow the spirit to graciously convict you of anything you want to repent of. You can turn to the Lord now in repentance. He forgives you. And then say, Lord, give me that hunger for more of you, to see revival in my life and my context. 
consecrate myself before you now. Because I believe that tomorrow you will do amazing things among us. In Jesus' name, amen.